0: Hi, and welcome to Aspect Ratio Projects One to One. My name is Jennifer Armetta, and I'm the director of the gallery. Um, Aspect Ratio Projects is a contemporary art gallery located in Chicago, but we do represent emerging and mid-career conceptual artists from around the world. This is our series of podcasts that we look um, at a sort of a sort of like an informal fireside chat with our artists. Um, time to get personal, have some fun, learn about art, and our artists along the way. I am happy to be speaking with Adam Daly-Wilson today, who's having his first solo show with our gallery, and in fact, his first solo show ever. So it's very exciting. Um, Thank you to Darby Jack Gustafson, our associate intern, for producing this event today. Hey, Adam, how are you?
1: Hi, Jennifer. How are you doing?
0: (laughs) I'm good. I'm really good. I have no complaints, actually, so that's a good thing. I thought we would start at the beginning, as they say. I know you have not had the most traditional route on your way to becoming an artist. In fact, had a very successful career in another area being law, which is not something that usually translates into being an artist. So maybe maybe you want to shed some light on on how that came to be.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah. So I'm about, uh, I'm almost 50 and uh, I did have a, a first career in a first life. And you know, I, I, it's one of those things where I guess you finally find what you were meant to do, and I found it later than other folks, so I feel pretty lucky that I found out, and I'm lucky that I get a chance to uh, do it. Yeah, so I started out, I was doing a typical uh, undergraduate's life, I was thinking about the future, and, and back then that sort of meant really one path, which was grad school. For me, it ended up being law after some, uh, some brief work at the Department of Justice as a paralegal, and I found myself lucky at law school. And you know, law was great, and I thought it was going to be all I wanted—not just because of law, but because of my classmates and who I met. They were just wonderful people, and it was intellectually stimulating. And uh, some of the firms I got a chance to work at. So you know, art really wasn't on my mind until much later in life, when—and uh, I'll be glad to describe more in a minute—but it turned out that a couple of random things happened, and all of a sudden I started to be thinking uh, things would come into my head. <laughs> There's really no other way to say it. We're a lot different than when you're thinking about legal stuff and writing briefs
0: for uh, yeah. for courts of appeals and stuff like that. And then it was yeah. off from there. So you had never thought about anything about art prior to that? It was, you were just on your course or had you dabbled in art? Did you draw paint or,
1: or do anything of think-
0: that sort? I did a
1: few things and and they are stashed away, although honestly, I don't think they're very good, but they were fun to make. But I'll tell you, you know, maybe one fun story. I did take an art history class. This is the only, you know, any exposure I ever had except for what I've taught myself. I took an art history class and I did my final paper on the idea that conceptual art could not possibly be art. And I almost failed that class, and the reason why I talked to the professor afterwards, and the uh, the professor said, it's not that uh, you can't make that argument. Anyone's entitled to make any argument they want. It's just that you didn't even have an open mind about it. You didn't even argue the other side, and of course, as a lawyer, that's what you're trained to do, <laughs> you know, argue things round and flat, and I, I took his point pretty well. It was that, you know, it was really, he was basically saying, you know, you 're entirely ignorant but only after you've thought about it and uh, <laughs> and i always appreciated that and of course you know here's the joke as my friends point out now uh making conceptual art and that's the art that i really believe in the most and there i was doing the exact opposite 30 years ago
0: isn't that so interesting i think but i think that is a I don't know. It's an interesting place where people start with regard to conceptual art, because I love working with people that are just learning about art. They're just curious. They don't have any foundation. And literally, the first thing they say to me is when they look at a piece of art normally, that it could be it could appear to be somewhat very, very simple. They say, well, I could have done that. And my Mm. response to them always is, but you didn't. And let's mm. talk about how this came to be. And so it sounds like maybe you had a similar <laughs> thought process. I'm not exactly sure, but it sounds a little bit like that.
1: Yeah, it was a bit. And I just was reading about this recently. I thought at the time that art had to be beautiful, defined as sort of very restricted thing. It has to have either beautiful color or beautiful black and white or beautiful composition or all these terms that I understood. And I, I thought if it wasn't pretty, if it didn't somehow please you in an aesthetic sense, then um, somehow it was not quite uh, real art with some kind of notion, whatever real art was. And one of the things I loved reading recently um, was the idea that um, there's other ways to stimulate the brain in an artistic sense, and they don't have to be purely by a notion of beauty especially because beauty can be different things in different cultures and also at different times and you know that is, is to me really mm-hmm. important in what i do and, and how i think just by way of example again you know when you practice law you're practicing uh, in most contexts the law of that particular country mm-hmm. but art is is everywhere and it's supposed to in my mind and it can transcend languages and transcend cultures so quickly and i think maybe that's why beauty is such a common denominator when you think of art But also ideas can and that's what i like and it's the idea that the brain can be stimulated and have almost like an artistic response in the viewer's head by things that don't necessarily fit the quote-unquote definition of beautiful
0: right well that's interesting though because at least in my opinion the art that you make is actually very beautiful but it um, is very complex and dare i say somewhat dark (laughs) moments Um. So you're bringing together something that's aesthetically beautiful, but with these complex ideas, seems like you have come to terms with your feelings about conceptual art and done a very good job at that. Well, th- thanks. I,
1: you know, it's Well, first of all, I think it's always uh, changing. For example, the works that are uh, in the show right now are based on something I sort of came together with in terms of how I wanted to express things and get ideas across really in the past maybe six months. sure it'll change going forward in other ways but to me that's the beauty of conceptual art as i use it and i want to express it which is it really is the idea and since it's text it can be executed and shown any number of ways and i'm really agnostic as to how in some senses some of the conceptual art and text that i do comes across or how it's made but i'm still always looking to find that that transcension because text art you know it's in one particular language and i don't want to be limited to english or have it be limited to people who only speak English, i got to find a way or I want to find a way where text art and the kind of thinking I do and put it down can get across and not have a language barrier.
0: That's interesting because when you were speaking earlier, what was going through my head was that the art in and of itself is almost another language, you know, the, a way and a means of expression that the word that you use transcends, you know, normal everyday occurrences or experiences. So you can wrap that up into a photograph or a painting and it can have multiple meanings and you might not even need to understand what language it is.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that and, and I love it because one of the pieces at the show right now is detail and appropriated detail of a, a public domain photograph that when you do the research on it, has literally transcended language and culture across the world and has become an iconic symbol for a couple of different things. And it literally, apparently, it's it's one of those few icons out there in the non-religious context that everyone gets, or almost everyone gets, no matter where you are in the world. It's a a famous uh, photograph um, of a famous revolutionary taken in 1960. And the more I looked into it, it really has transcended and is um, understood in almost every culture. There's no East-West divide and it's transcended uh, the language barrier.
0: Well, let's talk about that because you do work in two different styles, um, a more very, I guess, text-based work, very Ruscha-esque for um, lack of a better description. Although I think that is a good one, but then you also have your personal writing system. So do you want to kind of explain the difference of those two and, do you get inspired at different times to do one or the other? How does that work?
1: I do. Yeah, and let me see if I'm hopefully I'm not giving away too many uh secrets here, but I'll here's what I can <laughs> tell you because this is how it sort of evolved. When I first started doing work I was I was absolutely intrigued by uh by Christopher Wool and and the starkness and the use of stencil and just the idea and I didn't really I wasn't able to appreciate more at the time, but the idea that just the text was being reduced to something so elemental, black and white and stencil. There was no way to read into something from the font, things like that. Uh, and then I realized that it was, it was substantively it was the work of uh, Jenny Holzer and Barbara Kruger had, had so many more layers of depth in other areas. And it wasn't that one was right or wrong. It's just that they they added more to it. So that came a piece of the puzzle. And here I am, of course, self-taught. I'm trying to learn on the fly, but I was really trying to find a way to make sure I wasn't uh, you know, just doing something that had already been done. Uh, Then you get Ed Ruscha, and you're right. Uh, You know, that's to me, if you really reduce it, it's a different type of text altogether than anyone else I've mentioned so far over some type of expansive natural image. And I found that to be of use, too, because it it starts to provide that, that, that extra layer of meaning or some context or juxtaposition. And then there's so many others, too. And I tried to learn all the text artists I could, and I'm still learning. And it really has come down to then six styles to to answer your question more directly or or six sort of buckets or categories that seem to be working. And one is the wide, uh, long cinematic. Um, They're much more wide than tall, but they have uh, many, many text elements, uh, centralized what appears to be one theme, but ideally has about four or five sub themes and even different themes uh, woven in. And that's something that's come up in the past six months. And I'm hoping that's going to be something that really uh, just stays as a mainstay because, if I can, I'll just tell you a quick side story. You know, for Jim Brown, yeah. the football player, you know, everyone knew he was one of the best football players ever. And someone asked him once, he's like, you know, do, do you just love football? Isn't that your favorite thing? And he said, no, actually, lacrosse is my favorite thing because uh, in lacrosse, I could fully express my body and my mind as an athlete. He's like, I could do hmm. so much more in that field in all the ways. And, and I'm not going to be able to give his words justice because he, it almost sounded like poetry the way he spoke. I'm always looking for, and I don't know if I'll be able to find, but I would love to find some way to get across text through a couple different ways that that allow that fullest expression and isn't limited in any way. So what you're seeing on the walls right now is, is the first attempt at that, where you have a ton of text that conveys a ton of things, but is tied in both by other text and a visual. It gives much more artistic freedom than rolling it into your question and the other artists I mentioned, you know, I do a long, wide work that has black and white text that references wool, and it's meant to be stark, and that's all it is, and there's no visual, it's black and white. And then there's the Ruscha, uh ones that I, I look at there, and I, I try and certainly, I, I, I hope I'm never copying or appropriating, but I, I try and borrow from what, what I think are the elements there, the idea of a statement that may be much more esoteric behind an expansive background that really draws on nature. And then you have, you right, what I call the personal writing systems, which are my handwriting, very loose, sometimes scratchy, sometimes more fluid. But seven or eight foot tall paintings that come out in three or four minutes, sometimes five, frankly, are unlike anything else that I do. They just they stick out like a sore thumb if you compare A, B and C and D <laughs> next to each other in a row. Um, and then finally, maybe the other last bucket is the works where you. Um, they blend have different components. In other words, maybe like a stark piece of text and maybe an image or maybe not as compared to a a more playful piece of text. And as you had mentioned, some of the work seems dark and and maybe is, but I do have a whole nother area of work that uh, it almost falls in the category of wordplay because sometimes those come out too.
0: When you talk about nature and kind of the Ed Ruscha-esque ones, um, you know, having a a strong background or natural component. What's the word I'm looking for? That, I guess. Are you influenced by where you live? I mean, you live in Portland, Maine. Nature's all around you. Is that part of of how that came together?
1: Nature, and it comes up in one of the the pieces right now that's in the gallery. Um, I grew up in an extremely rural part of Northern New Hampshire. There was about 500 people. We were in the shadow of Mount Washington. Uh, There was only one other kid my age in the town. And for, um, yeah, for... uh, For fun, my friend and I, there was no playground in town. It was too small. Uh, They had a dairy farm. We would slide down the backs of cows. We were that little at the time and cows are that gentle and and tolerable. Um, That's what we did. And you spend a lot of time in nature and you spend a lot of time in solitude, Um, not loneliness, but solitude. And I think that really more than Portland or even more than California, that really forms the natural part of what I do.
0: Okay. That makes sense. And then the other thing that came to mind when you're talking about your personal writing systems is the layers, which I personally have never seen before. Um, they're very interesting to look at, but you do have your other work also has layers to it, whether it's on a photograph and text over that, or the other ones that are in the show that have the different size texts, your text and oil over that as well. And, and an image. So what is it about layering that's interesting to you?
1: It also goes back, just like I was mentioning that story about my art class. I took another class in school. And you have to remember, again, coming back from rural New Hampshire, uh, you know, getting a chance to go to a college in a big city was just mind-blowingly fantastic. But I was clueless. Uh, now I'm always clueless. I'm going to be clueless for the rest of my life. But I was really clueless back then. And I took this class and I, I made the argument in a, look, um, a mini paper or something that there was a cause singular for this thing that happened. And the professor was very nice uh, and he basically said, welcome to the real world. There's more than one cause for everything. And in fact, there's so many causes sometimes times you really can't keep count. And I loved that idea. You know, Then you get into law and uh, you know, at the end of the day when it comes to arguments about particular, uh, whether it's case law or a statute or other things or the constitution, you're not dealing with layers. Now as a factual matter, the, what you're dealing with, there may be lots of layers, but as a legal matter, the actual law you're not dealing with that many layers you apply a to b to c or you apply a and b to c it's it's pretty simplistic you know in in the concept so i love layers going back to what the teacher taught me because i at this point in my life and maybe i'll change later but as i hit 50 i don't see anything but layers um, i can argue things simplistically if i need to and i'm taught to argue things round or flat if i really need to but i see i see beauty in layers at this point because I see. Just wonderful complexities, you know, not like it's only in my head, like I'm seeing things, you know, spark up in my head. But the more I read and the more I listen and the more I just just see beautiful layers. And I want to try and express that.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, I think definitely as we get older, we have layers of experience. We are able to understand different perspectives, not just in art, but in life. Right. And um, it sounds to me like that kind of all comes together for you. Yeah, I know. I think you hit the nail on the head and I like the way you said that. Ah, Well, thank you. I have to write that down. down. (laughs) Okay. So there is a piece that I really want to talk about because I, I kind of reference that it's, it's dark, but I think it is really provocative in a good way and thought provoking in a really good way. And that is hold me back from my humanity. You um, bring up an idea that, you know, talking about the Catholic church, the president at a border and the mafia, and who would you rather leave your child with? And why don't you, I don't want to take the whole, I don't want to steal the thunder of the piece, but why don't you talk about that? Because you make a really interesting point.
1: Going back to the layers, one of the things I like best about layers is you get to cover the assumptions that people walk in with. You get to cover the status quo or the conventional wisdom. You get to cover a whole range of things, including what, if you just saw it alone, has been my experience would be the uh, instantly dismissible because it wouldn't have any context and it could just be ignored. And so, and I'll get directly to your question in a second. One of the things I've always wanted to do and I've I've been able to do it once or twice and I've just loved it when I've seen it in people's eyes when they think they know where a work is going or they think they know where language is going and then you can just see a little mental hiccup because they realize A, it may be going somewhere else or B, Uh, maybe they're starting to see it a different way. And so the whole point of a lot of my works is, I don't don't ever want to tell you what I think. And I'm not trying to force my views on anybody. But I'd love to get you to think and Mm -hmm. I I really enjoy trying to find ways to do that. And so with this work, that that setup that you just mentioned, yeah, it poses a question, and I'll get into it and get why in a second. But it's the idea that Let's really compare three things that, you know, maybe no one's ever thought to compare before. Maybe they have. Um, but either way, if they have been compared before, let's compare them in a way that really hits home, not in the abstract or not in some kind of intellectual distant way that, um, you know, makes it, you know, sort of like harmless. Let's really put down the brass tacks because most of us, or not all of us, can relate to if not having a child, having someone we care about. And like, who would you put someone you care about? Who would you trust them with? And the reason why the work sets up those three things is the work is ostensibly about what the Catholic Church has done with respect to what's generally known as the pre-scandal. And the underlying visual behind it is, to my understanding, a pretty famous work by Caravaggio. And I I took a piece of it because apparently he was commenting on the churches uh, 500 years ago, suggesting that the, the fruit that he drew in that still life was representative of rot and corruption within the Catholic Church. So already I'm trying to get across the point, you know, is this thing that we call the pre-scandal, is it really that new? If it's not new, is it going to keep going? And then it's the idea that, you know, and you're right, going to abandonment. If kids are arguably being abandoned through a major religious institution, are they being abandoned elsewhere? Is this who we are? Is this really our norm? Well, you know, it could be shown if you're looking at actual facts that it's being done to a particular group of people at our borders. And it's it's if you look into it, it's being done other places too, where kids are being abandoned, but forcibly they're being stripped. And then the third part is, you know, these are arguably, if you want to start to think about it, the suggestion is, you know, pretty bad things from some normative levels and levels of faith and religion and other moral constructs. And is there anyone else out there that we should be looking at by way of an example, even if it turns out that example doesn't bear, bear fruit. And so, you know, the more I looked into it, it was the mafia. And I'll confess, you know, these are our three things that maybe from some senses should not be put together and some things that ought not uh, or or do not work when you put them together. And, you know, strictly logical, you can find all ways to pick it apart. But at the end of the day, uh, if you buy into the notion, which may or may not be true, I, I think the evidence is out that the mafia is Uh, a safe harbor for children with respect to they may do many bad things, but they don't do bad things to kids. If you accept that Mm -hmm. premise or just take it for a minute, you know, really, where is a kid safer these days? And obviously, you know, from some levels, it's an absurd question. But going back to what I said a minute ago, does it create that mental hiccup that gets us thinking a little bit in a different way to just get past the conventional wisdom?
0: No, no. I mean, I think that's great. And, you know, as you started, we started this conversation, it is actually aesthetically a very beautiful piece. I mean, you can see the art historical references in it. um, You can see the contemporary notions in it. um, And clearly it's diving into something that is, you know, top of mind today, top of mind 500 years ago, um, addressing all of those issues in one piece, which is very beautiful and that leads me to my next question about this entire show being about remembering, misremembering, etc. I really had two things.
1: it's what may become obvious or is first thought when you think of forgetting and remembering because uh, you know we as people can forget and remember we as a society or, or cultures or even a world can forget or remember and then there's two parts to it the more I looked into it is that you know it, it can happen to us passively. Uh, we forget things that we don't want to forget for any number of reasons, and it can happen actively. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to, that seemed to fit with all the pieces, and also I realized seems to fit with what I want to try and do in the bigger picture, which is not only look up and see what's going around, but remember, do we want to just bury this and forget it and look away, or do we want to remember some type of general idea of normal, moral or ethical or some type of common thing, whether you want to call it a social contract or whether it be from religion or faith, the idea that we were going to have some rules. So that's one reason for the title. The other one, and I don't know if I had a chance to tell you this, but you know, I'm lucky enough to be shown in Chicago and to be privileged to be part of a gallery that's in Chicago. When I think of, uh, as a lawyer, the first thing when I think of Chicago, I think of what happened with the Chicago 7, uh, the famous trial, of course, uh, in the 60s. And um, the constitutional violations that occurred in that trial, and uh, what was being, or what was at stake, and why uh, the defendants were on trial for things such as civil disobedience and uh, First Amendment rights to speak up against the war at the time. And so, forgetting and remembering, my view is it's all too easy to do on the tough subjects. And so, what I want to do is, you don't, you don't have to remember them with me, but I want to remember what's going on. Uh, what has gone on, because hopefully then someday that will help make sure that certain things don't continue to go on.
0: So do you look at this as kind of a reminder to people? Is that part of of this? Like you're putting something out there that you feel is important, that has been going on for a long time, and if we keep it at the forefront, then maybe we'll evolve and actually address these issues?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I agree. I think it's a good way to put it. And and going back to layers, I think it's um, Here's the facts that we are either remembering or not remembering. The fact that we're not remembering or we're remembering, it's almost a meta point. And then it's the, uh, whether we do or don't remember, what does that get us? Does it get us something? Does the utilitarian concept of it even matter? To me, you can really tug at it a lot because at the end of the day, we're, I think we're trying to figure out uh, as humanity, as cultures, as nations, as groups within a nation, You know, really, what are we trying to do? And that seems to be a more and more open question right now. We don't all seem to be on the same page. And does memory or forgetting or actively pushing things away contribute to that? Questions like that.
0: Well, yeah, especially in a daytime age that, uh, you know, a news cycle is all but a minute and we've moved on to the next thing, I think we do forget. I think we are more apt to forget things. And then it's the old thing of always brushing everything under the rug, right? That we don't want to deal with. So that's, I guess, more of a defense mechanism, maybe. I don't know, it could be a cultural thing as well. I'm sure it is. I
1: I, I was talking to a bunch of law school classmates uh, by Zoom the other night, and uh, they were asking me some stuff. And you know, one thing I got, it's a personal thing to the art, and I don't know if it should be, but it's, you know, uh, I I wanted to let my kids know, or I hope they see someday from the art or uh, as they get older, that um, I didn't look away. I didn't uh, just tune out, but rather I I tried to see what was going on. I tried to be honest about it, and I Mm -hmm. I tried to use my voice about it. Uh, Whether that might be successful or matter, I don't know, but at least I didn't look away. My kids tell me they don't want me to, but... (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, with this whole transformation of dad being a, a lawyer to now dad being an artist, or your friends too, not just as a father figure, like, how has that gone? How have you been received?
1: Well, first of all, everyone's been so encouraging, including my kids. I mean, you know, I started making art in 2014. And, you know, frankly, you know, it wouldn't have been strange if some of my friends and uh, my kids said, you know, you're off your rocker. I mean, I, it wasn't like I was... Uh, <laughs> you know, changing my life wholesale, but everyone's been so supportive. What I've also appreciated, uh, especially my children, believe it or not, people have been honest. People have let me know. Uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll I'll show a work or try a new experiment, and uh, people will say, "Nope, that's just really." I mean, you got a lot of work to do if you want to keep pursuing that particular <laughs> body. Especially <laughs> My kids they'll let me know, or like even for the videos I make, my son uh, and my daughter will let me know that uh, you might want to like just frame that a little bit different in terms of what's in the the camera frame at this time, stuff like that. What's also been very helpful, I was very lucky to meet a bunch of what I call my art friends from all over the world from the first couple art fairs I did in New York, and they were just so welcoming and letting me know that it was okay to start to make the transition to uh, artist. They were just able to sort of like help smooth it over in terms of a life, and I've always been very thankful for that.
0: Oh, yeah, that's great. I know you... Like I said, at the beginning, you came into this in a very different manner than most people do. You know, I mean, obviously there are multiple pathways to becoming an artist. You either know when you're really young or you discover it a little bit later, you go through your undergrad, grad degrees, and then you look for a gallery or whatever, whatever right. that that path might be, that more traditional path. So you used to go to the other art fair, right? And you'd set up a booth and didn't you meet Millie Glimsher? Am I correct in remembering that?
1: you know the way it started and we can talk more about it if you want in a minute but uh so i've been diagnosed polar since uh almost yeah over two decades now and my doctor my psychiatrist who was just been fantastic my harvard psychiatrist she said you know i've been doing some research and she's like you know i think if we make a very small change in your medicine and we'll monitor it carefully she's like i think you might be able to capture some of what you've been talking about and what i've been talking about is for years And this goes back to your earlier question about, you know, had I ever been a a, a quote unquote artist or dabbled, there was no doubt that I was having what I guess you could call artistic thoughts or the kind of thoughts you now see in the art starting in my 20s. And I don't think it's necessarily bipolar related, but I just I could put things together and I didn't make a big deal of it, but I had friends and, and, and other people I knew who said, you know, that's a really interesting way to look at things. So it turned out my doctor said, you know, since you, you know, are putting things together like this, why don't we see, you know, what happens if we make a slight tweak and see if it opens up some chance to, uh, let's just see what happens. I was like, sure, I'll try it. And I didn't really think about it. And I certainly didn't think about it in terms of art. I just thought it might mean you know, you can like make a few more connections and it just may make an interesting way to think in your head. And all of a sudden, so luckily, uh, unexpectedly, the art started flowing. I had all of these, uh, you know, again, they're not popping off like stars in my head or something like that in the cartoons, (laughs) but all of a sudden ideas started coming and uh, they were almost all in words and probably because that's how I sort of spend my life uh, as a lawyer, but so I started putting them down and it was really rudimentary at first. I just kept it quiet to myself and I would tell my doctor and we would just sort of go through and that we made one more medicine tweak because she thought all signs were good and she was right, they were. And that's how the art started. So to fast forward from that, two years later, I got up I, I got up the courage. I was like, I was sure they're gonna reject me. I applied to the other art fair in New York. And I think it was gonna be, yeah, it was the very, very first one. I was like, they'll never take me, but 50 bucks to apply, who, you know, no harm in <laughs> fail. Right, and I got in. I had up my art and I was doing performance art. I met all these great other artists from around the world. And they were just so decent about two things. One, me daring to try to be an artist, even though I had no training. They were just so decent and friendly about it. And the second one was they didn't care that I had bipolar. Fast forward from that and and going to, uh, to Millie, what happened next was I got the cut for the second art fair, like in other words, the second edition the year later. And my art friends. Uh, suggested without giving me any specific ideas they just said go big it turned out by luck I had drawn a 12 foot high by eight foot wide by eight foot wide corner right sort of in grand central station of the art fair and they said just whatever you do go big and so I took their advice and I went big I put up this giant installation of uh, 64 different colors repeated over and over there were 256 squares and they had 256 statements and questions that I had, that had come out of my mind that were meant to represent all together the colors in the text, what you uh, can feel like if you are inside the mind of somebody who's slightly hypomanic, which means just barely above normal as bipolar, uh, not manic, but just hypomanic. Mm-hmm. And people liked it. People people cried and people hugged me. I got a lot oh. of just human, it was, yeah. And uh, and it was well, thanks nice to these art friends I made who had given me the courage to go big and not just put up it just worked and that led to i I had a chance to serve on the board of uh, a phd program for visual artists and philosophy and that uh, also on the board was millie and i was very honored once i got a chance to uh to meet her quickly and briefly in new york and she gave me my first suggestions of art books to read so here i'm I'm looking at them right now are, are the four books that she recommended i get and I, I pour through them whenever I can.
0: So you can say you're a student of Millie Glimsher. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> or you uh, made I, yourself
0: I, one. <laughs> I, I don't know if I, I just want I'm, I'm always thankful. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. That really is. And speaking of when you said going big, we have not discussed how you work solely in large format and why. I guess now we've sort of opened the, uh, oh, the yes, yes, yes. dialogue well, to well,
1: that. Yes, and I want to be clear. One of the best things about art, and maybe I don't want to, its not why I became an artist, but once I realized things were heading this way, I got to be open as an artist. I got to because that that first show I told you about, or that, that one with all the colors and the text, there was performance art too. And one was, "Here I am. I'm a respectable guy looking uh, nice in a suit. I had my best lawyer suit on. And then, if you read <laughs> the paperwork on the side, it says I have a severe mental illness." does that change how you look at me? And we had all, it was two and a half days of performance art and it really went well just talking to people and then talking to me about changes in perception. And so going to what you just asked about the big work, yes, I have bipolar and I'm 100% open about it. And I was scared to for 13 years of the 20. It's absolutely terrifying to tell the world given all the stigma. But now it's out in the open because among other things, I've made it out in the open, but really as my kids point out, dad, your handshake shake badly and my handshake shake badly because of all the lithium over all the 20 years, you should see me try and eat soup. And I will never, <laughs> I will never in a restaurant order certain meals if I can't stab it with a fork because it just doesn't work. And so I work very big because the text that I paint at this point can't be smaller than three inches a letter or I just won't be able to do what we all do in grade school, just stay stay in the lines. And it takes about an hour now per letter, you know, take a three-inch letter, four-inch letter, it takes about an hour to paint it. I've sort of taken my brushes and I cut them a certain way and I hold my arm a certain way. I got to keep that entire arm steady because the hand isn't steady. And that's how I do my
0: lettering. That is a good story. And I, I mean, I love that you wear it on your sleeve, you know? I mean, why wouldn't you? I, and I would love that you're trying to do your part in breaking down the stigma. I think we all know people that have bipolar or some sort of, you know, mental illness that they're dealing with. It always irks me when people say I am bipolar. And to me, I'm always like, no, you have it. Like yeah. you have cancer. Like you have, it's not, de- it doesn't define you. You haven't become it. You know, it's something that you deal with. And um, I think it's great. you continue to do that today with teens, correct? You you speak with them and you talk with them about living with bipolar and maybe other mental yeah.
1: illnesses too? Yes, I've certainly given talks, but what I, I get to do right now, and I'm very, uh, very lucky, and there's a great organization. It's called the Yellow Tula Project. It's based out of Portland, Maine, but it's national now and even international. It's all student driven. So basically the adults make sure that there's certain things you have to do for a 501 C3. And so the adults do it. I'm on the board of directors. And what this is is um, from the ground up. Students—it's not that it's viral, but it's students and youth, whether it be high school or college—they hear about it basically word of mouth or through the internet or TikTok. They approach us and they just want a little bit of guidance as to how they can start their own, you know, free-form organization in their school or community to combat stigma by spreading hope. You know, when you are having a tough time for anything, including mental illness hope goes a long way. And I remember that personally myself. So we, we help teens and uh, college kids do that. And uh, we basically are are in some ways like an incubator or an accelerator out in the Valley to whatever they need to get going so that they can create what they want on the ground where they are to spread the hope their way in their community. We just try and support that.
0: Well, what a lovely thing to do. I mean, by... Your community outreach and ta- and working with the teens and through your art, I mean, just to touch one or two lives is wonderful. You've touched many. So that's, I'm in awe. That's an amazing thing. So thank you for doing that. If
1: I may, just on that, and I appreciate you saying that, but I mean, I have to say the thing I love the most is, and I wish it was sort of a, this concept around where people did it when I was first diagnosed, to see teens do it themselves. I mean, really, we, we provide some support because, you know, it just, it's, everyone needs a little bit of support to get certain things going or a bit of advice here and there, but to see 15, 16, 70 year old kids do it and young college students, and they, they run a big part of the organization. So I'm just, I'm impressed by, you know, and and this goes anywhere. I, I think you may have seen it too. And I know others do. There's a lot of teens these days, stepping up and doing
0: some really big, important stuff. That is true. That is true. And it's impressive. Thank goodness. Hopefully more and more. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I
1: agree.
0: (laughs) Well, Adam, it has been a true delight. Thank you so much. Um, We will be sure to get this on our website. So if anyone wants to review or see Adam's show, it would be wonderful. And we have actually, I should do this little plug of on our website, we are trying very hard to educate people on art, conceptual art. So you are able to read about each piece of art. It says click here for more information and you can, take a stab at understanding what Adam is talking about. All right. Thank you, Adam.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Jennifer.
0: Yeah, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Sounds good. Bye-bye.
0: Okay. Bye-bye.